All right, well, let's go ahead and turn, to, turn in our Bibles to the book of Ephesians. And go ahead, please, and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. If you're making notes this morning, which I'd encourage you to, you don't have to, but it's a really helpful way often of just trying to remember things and process things. I know for myself, if I don't make notes, usually by Monday I've forgotten what the pastor's even preached on. You know, it's just like, I don't know, stuff. But it helps me process, it helps me not get as distracted. So if you aren't making notes, the title for this morning is The Walls Come Tumbling Down. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive into this together. Well, Lord, how kind you are to meet us in the worship in the way you did. As I think about blind Bartimaeus and the fact that you, the King of all grace, stopped for one. That's regularly our experience. Each one is not a number to you. Each one isn't even a name. Each one is a child who you love, who you want to meet, who you want to encounter. What a loving father you are. And Lord, I pray now, would you meet with us in the preached word as well? Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes to see the glories of Jesus and the glories of the gospel? That is something no preacher can do, but you can do it in a moment. So, Lord, take my words, use them, and would our lives be affected by the truth of your glories. Amen. You know, one of the things that I've always struggled with, in part about the human race, is, the, is our ability to diversify very quickly and divide on, on often very strange lines. And it's one of the things I've always found difficult. I've always found difficult, in particular, the, the social divides the upper class and the middle class and the lower class and the working class and how it all functions. I've always just found that difficult. And so for me, getting on a plane is always horrendous because I'm not that bothered about the actual flight itself. But if you've ever got on a plane, particularly a bigger plane, you know that you are seriously classed off, correct? You're all like this in the waiting room. You're all friends. You actually talk to one another. Oh, how excited we are to go on this plane. Until the announcement comes that we're now loading the plane. And could all the first class and business class members come through? And you, you, your friend is now not your friend, because off he goes, and I'm business class, first class. And he's shaking his ticket around the place to let everybody know that he's getting on first. And then they get the premium economy, and in they go, and you're checking your ticket as if in some twist of sovereign fate, you might have accidentally got a premium. Uh, and you find, no, we are seat 144. We appear to be in the boot. We may not even be on the plane. We are so far back. <laughs> And so we get out our ticket, and we keep checking, we keep seeing what's going on, and eventually they say, we're now loading rows 144 onwards, and you think, that, that's, that's us. So you stand up, and now you have to go through the rigmarole of walking through the different sections. That's always horrible, isn't it? You, you walk through first class, and there they are, they're trying out their chairs. You know, they've, they've clearly done it before, but they're trying out their chairs. The massager's on, they're seeing how far back they can go on the train while they're sipping their champagne, and you're going through with your bag. And then you get to business class, and the same process goes on. They're already checking a few movies out, and the, the stewardess is stroking their feet because it's one of the environments of the business class. And then you go through premium economy, and eventually you find the smallest seat, possibly only the size of a small child, and you realize, that's my seat. So you sit down. But, but you struggled all the way down. I struggled all the way down. I want to go first class. And going through first class, I want to take my bag, and I want to smack everybody on the head with it. <laughs> You just think, is there any way that we could just connect with you? Or can you just rope out your arms and bang, bang? You know, that would just be, I would love that. There's just something in me that just thinks, you think you're good? Have it. You know, there's just things about class. 
that I've always found difficult. Now, it's obviously not necessarily their fault. Their business is often paying and so forth. But still, I just want them to know, have it, nonetheless. I've always found class divisions difficult. And yet we live in a world that is very divided. Not only divided in class, it's divided in numerous different ways. It's divided in race. It's divided in politics. It's divided in the way it thinks about so many different things. It's divided by tribes. It's divided along ethical lines and ethnic lines. You know, philosophers call this the problem of the one and the many. And the question that really relates around that problem that they philosophize over is how can there ever be clear unity in a world that is so fragmented and fractured? It's something we often think about, isn't it? We don't necessarily think of it quite that way, but it is. We look at the world and you read the paper and you speak to people and you realize there are so many dividing lines in our culture and in our world. How can there ever be unity? Because some of these dividing lines are horrendous. Some of these dividing lines bring wars and oppressions and slaveries. How can there ever be unity in a world that is so broken down, so fragmented and so fractured? Well, the thing that I like about the passage that we're looking at today is we get the answer to the problem of the one and the many. We find out the answer to unity in the midst of great diversity and fragment and fracture. The solution as we will see, is not found in philosophy or a political program. The solution is not found in some social awareness program that we can just make people aware of and the fragments will go. The solution is not going to be found in those things. The solution is found in a person, Jesus Christ. And that's what this passage is all about. Let's read from verse 11 through to verse 22. Therefore remember... That at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You know, since verse 1 of chapter 2, Paul has been taking the Ephesian church on a trip down memory lane. He's been reminding them all the way through that this is who you were. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. You are an object of God's wrath. 
And yet in grace and in mercy and love, he saved you. He came after you and died in your place so that you may have life and life in abundance. And realize, Ephesians, this is all by the grace of God and the grace of God alone. Well, as he then continues from verses 11 through 22, his trip down memory lane hasn't finished. He continues to hold their hand and he continues to show them more as he reminds them of their past. But now, in essence, he wants to remind them of one thing. You want to know what Paul is getting at in this text? He's getting at this. He wants them to realize that Jesus came not only to reconcile a people to God, but to reconcile a people to one another by breaking down the walls of hostility that so often divide us. He wants to help them see that God not only saved you by his grace and not only reconciled you to him, Jesus Christ through the cross also broke down the walls of hostility that are so often fracturing society, reconciling you to one another by the grace of God and for the glory of God. This text really splits down there in three different ways. From verses 11 through 12, he reminds them of how the walls have gone up. Verse 13 through 18, he reminds them of how the walls have come down. And verse 19 through 22, he reminds them of the effect of the walls coming down. So let's start where he starts in verses 11 through 12, looking at how the walls have gone up. You see, one thing it is important to understand is that the Jews and the Gentiles hated one another. These guys weren't hanging out for fun. They weren't coming together thinking, oh, it'd be great to hang out as a church. There was a general hatred in the nation of the Jews and in the nation of the Gentiles. In part, that was caused by the Jews. They had been set apart by God. They had been set apart by God for God as a nation of his own, as we read in Genesis 12. He's going to be their God and they are going to be his people. And he promises that he will always oversee them as he makes a covenant with them, a theocracy, that he will indeed be their God. And the mandate to them in their lives then is that they would be a blessing and a light to all the other nations. But they decided they didn't fancy that bit. They twisted, tragically, what God had set them apart to do. They twisted it into some type of sick favoritism that resulted not in them being a blessing to the nations. It resulted in them looking on at the Gentiles down their nose at them. They just thought they were pathetic. They didn't like the other nations. They thought that they were lower class to them. The Jews are the chosen ones, and the Gentiles are, they're just the dogs. Who cares about them? William Barclay writes, The Jew had an immense contempt for the Gentile. The, gen- the Gentiles, said the Jews, were created by God to fuel the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel of all the nations that he had made. It was not even lawful, listen, not even lawful, to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need, for that would simply bring another heathen into the world. Until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt for the Jews. The barrier between them was obsolete. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, or if a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. Such contact with a Gentile was the equivalent of death. Did you hear that? The Jewish nation, the one that God had set apart to be a blessing to the nations, looked on at the other nations. And they decided, if my boy marries your girl, or my girl marries your boy, I'm going to have a funeral for them. I'm going to get a box, and we're going to put it in a tomb, and we're going to have a service. 
because that child will be dead to me because we hate the Gentiles. They're heathens. They just need to fuel the fires of hell. The Jews did not in any way or form like the Gentiles. And accordingly then, the Gentile response was equally as scornful. They were known, as we read in verse 11, as the uncircumcision. The Jews looked down on them. And accordingly, as you examine verse 12, you realize the Gentiles have not got a great lot going for them. They're Christless. They are separated from Christ. They had no thought or hope of a Messiah. They weren't even thinking along those devils. They had different idols and different gods, but they hadn't heard that a Messiah was coming for the real God, the true God, the one God. They were Christless. They were separated from the commonwealth of Israel, and they were strangers to the covenants of promise. The Old Testament covenant that God had between himself and Israel didn't cover the Gentiles. The Israelites were meant to reach out to the Gentiles and pull them in, but they didn't. They rejected them. They didn't like them. And so the Gentiles look on at the Jews with disdain. And we read at the end of verse 12, they were without hope and without God in the world. It's tragic, isn't it? Without hope, without God. But what they did have is hatred. Hatred towards the Jews. You have the Jews on one side, the Gentiles on the other. And in between, there is a wall a wall of hostility. It is a wall in their hearts, but it's also actually a physical wall. You see, what Paul does very cleverly in verse 14 is bring into mind the temple scene. You see, this wall of hostility was really a standing symbol. It was a specific standing symbol that really symbolized, not deliberately, but in practice, the hatred that the Jews had for the Gentiles. See, the dividing wall was a notable feature of the magnificent temple building in Jerusalem by Herod the Great. Herod the Great built a mother of a temple. It was huge. And the way it set up was as follows. And if you don't understand the way it's set up, then you're never going to understand the wall of hostility. So bear with me. In the middle of the temple, it was a raised up platform. That a huge big platform that was raised up, that was built up, it was all level. And in the middle of the platform, they had the Holy of Holies. This is the place where the Ark of the Covenant was. This is the place where God symbolically dwelt. Once a year, the great high priest could go beyond the curtain and visit God and be with God on behalf of the nation. Once a year, one man. They would tie rope around his leg and they would attach bells to his legs and say, listen, here's what you can do. Keep moving. And if we hear those bells stop, we'll assume that God's slashed you down. He struck you down. And so we will pull you out. I ain't going beyond the curtain. There was so much fear of being with God, and it was a fearful thing. So once a year, the great high priest goes beyond the curtain. That's in the middle of the temple. Outside, then, is the temple structure and the temple courts, and all on this raised platform, it is all Jews. There's areas where the Jewish priests can go. There's areas where the Jewish men can go. There's areas where the Jewish women can go. They are all on this upper level around the great temple. Around then the temple, there's a drop similar to this with five steps on it. So around a big rectangle block, there is then five steps around the whole block. And when I get to the bottom of those steps, there's then a wall. It's one and a half meters high. It's one and a half meters thick. And the other side of that wall is the court of the Gentiles. This wall 
is what became known symbolically as the wall of hostility. You see, the Gentiles were not allowed ever to come through that wall, to come through one of the 13 openings. The Gentiles were never allowed to do that. Up here in the temple and the temple courts, it is only Jews. And so they would put up signs around the wall. Josephus, a famous Jewish historian, says the stone wall had inscriptions on it saying no foreigner may enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. They were serious. They were serious about ensuring that this temple and this temple grounds is Jewish ground only. So you stay down there and there's a wall between us and you don't go crossing it. Remember Paul in Acts 21? They're dragging him out of the city wanting to stone him. Why is that? Because they thought that he had brought Trophimus, who was actually an Ephesian guy, they thought that here they had brought him up the steps and threw into the temple. They, he hadn't. But they thought he had, and so they had brandished Paul, and they're pulling him out of the city because they were going to kill him, because he shouldn't have done that. Now, he, he hadn't done it, so they didn't kill him, which is good. But they could have done, and would have done, because this was a serious offense for any Gentile un, uncircumcised individual to come up those steps and come into the Jewish waters. They weren't allowed to come past. But you see, what they could do was look. So they did. The Jews would rock up to the temple and they'd look down over the wall and just think, you suck. You're Gentiles. You're dogs. This is rubbish. You know, if you have to be around, then so be it. But to be honest, we're the chosen ones. You're not. So you stay down there. And if you come past this wall, you're dead. And the Gentiles would look up from, from before and they would see the temple. They'd see where God was meant to be dwelling. But they would also see the Jews in between and think, I hate you. You're horrible. You just reject us. You're meant to be God's people. I don't want any of that in my life. I, I'm interested in your holy of holies, but the Jews, we hate you. So the wall between us became known as the wall of hostility. You know, it would take a miracle to bring these two warring parties together within the context of what this would have looked like in those days, it would take an absolute profound miracle to bring these Jews together with those Gentiles. And yet what we read in verses 13 to 18 is that that miracle has come. See, in verses 13 to 18, we read how the walls have indeed come down. It reads as follows. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Paul desperately wants the Ephesian church to understand Jesus Christ in coming after you, seeing that you were dead in your transgressions and sins, seeing who you were before him, seeing that you were a wrath of God, Jesus Christ came after you, full of grace and mercy. As Jesus Christ died on the cross, and as he declared, it is finished, in the temple, the curtain tore in two. 
Not from bottom to top, that would be from us. But from top to bottom, a six-inch curtain caught, torn in two as God symbolically helps them to see that you now have access to the Holy of Holies. Not one man once a year, but anyone who will put their faith in Jesus Christ has now access to God. That's what Jesus Christ achieved on the cross. The curtain was torn in two, and it is as if Jesus then stands in the entrance and says, you want to go in there? You want to meet my Father? You want to be reconciled to the God that made you and now sustains you on you were made for? Great. Put your faith in me, and I will take you in. It's scandalous. But that is what Jesus Christ did. And Paul wants them to realize that's what he did for you. He rescued you and he reconciled you to God. But that's not all he did. As he declared, it is finished. Not only was the curtain torn in two. In so many ways, that dividing wall of hostility, that was smashed to the ground too. All the different courts for slaves and free and men and women and Gentile and Jew... All walls have gone. Jesus Christ, as he declared, it is finished, not only tore the curtain, he effectively brought the temple walls down too, helping them see that now in one spirit, in one flesh, mind, you're all joined. We're not called to be divided upon nations. We're called to be together in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. Armitage Robinson talks about the wall of hostility. And he says, The wall stood still, but it was already antiquated, obsolete, out of date. So far as its spiritual meaning went, the sign stood still, but the thing it signified was broken down. It wasn't until AD 70 that the Roman legions came in and actually took that temple apart. It says that no stone was left on top of another. They completely smashed the places to pieces. That was A.D. 70. But it was really A.D. 33 that really that temple, in terms of the walls, became obsolete. They weren't needed anymore. Because now Jesus Christ, standing in the Holy of Holies, says, Listen up. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, slave or free, man or woman, I don't care. Anybody who puts their faith in me can have access to the Father. There's no more walls. Forget them. We're all level ground around the cross. And as I save you, I reconcile you not only to God, I'm going to reconcile you to one another. I'm going to pull you together as a new nation, as a new royal priesthood, as a new temple. Now, this should be great news for us too. It would have been a wonderful reminder for the Ephesians church, two nations that would have effectively been at war with one another now being joined together in the context of a local church. Do you not think there might have been a few challenges with that? I suggest there probably was. What a great reminder. Guys, there's no dividing walls between you. You're together in the power of Jesus Christ. You're a family, a new temple. This should be great news to us as well. God has not only reconciled us to himself, but he's also reconciled us to one another. And so what is the answer to the problem of the one and the many? What is the answer to how there can be clear unity in a world that is so fragmented? Not politics, not philosophy, Jesus Christ. The answer is the gospel. Because when the gospel is preached, and when the gospel is understood, we get to realize that there is no diversity then that should cause dividing lines between us. There needs to be unity and diversity. Because now we're a family, all built on level ground 
around the glorious cross of Jesus Christ. You know what the effect then of these walls coming down was? Check it out in verse 19. It says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You know, two weeks' time we'll be looking at that more because there is, there is so much in those four verses. I can't begin to do it justice in the next ten minutes. But let us just hit the headlines nonetheless. The metaphors are so helpful as we understand what Paul is trying to say here. You were lost. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. He saved you by his grace through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Through the cross, he has brought you together. Listen, you're no longer strangers and aliens. No longer strangers and aliens to God. No longer strangers and aliens to each other. Instead, he says, you're fellow citizens members of a new kingdom, members of something new, a third race who he is building together, members indeed of the same household and part of a new temple, a temple that is being built together as a dwelling place for God. What great imagery. One minute he is talking about a wall of hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. And now he's saying through the cross, these walls have come down. But you know what? Through me and in me, we're building a new temple. As he stands at the doorway to the Holy of Holies with the curtain torn in two, as he explains to them that these walls have come down, as the dust is still settling around the walls of the temple, he stands in the Holy of Holies and says, you know what? We're going to build a new Holy of Holies. We're going to build a new temple, a new dwelling place for God. And that's not going to be made with bricks. It's going to be made with people. It's going to be made with Jews and Gentiles. It's going to be made with men and women. It's going to be made with young and old. It's going to be made with slave and free. In fact, it's going to be made with people from all tribes and language and nations. And through me, they're going to be put together in the context of local churches. And they are going to together be a temple for God, a place where he dwells. Festo Kevin Gary says, The cutting of the stone is done, and you have been fitted in. That is how he is taking us. Stones of all races and backgrounds and fitting us together into a beautiful dwelling place for God. You know what, folks? The local church, as biblically defined, should blow our minds. It is staggering. And as you read the book of Ephesians, let alone the Bible, you realize the local church is incredible. The local church isn't just some club that we come and tag on to. And we think, you know what, I'm going to come at 10.30 on a Sunday, and then oh, I've got some stuff on in the afternoon. An hour and a half, that's pretty good to give to a local church. As if this is just some sort of RSL or British Legion or something, which is awkward when we're Australian. But you get my point. God, it's as if we just tag along at different points, and that's the club. That's not what I read in my Bible. In my Bible, I see that the church is a family of brothers and sisters I don't see my brother once a week for an hour. I know him. He's my family. I love him. I want to do all I can for him. My brother phoned me tomorrow and said, Dave, I am just in trouble. I need you. I'm going to get on a plane. And I would because he's my family. He's my flesh and blood. 
is what I'm doing. In Christ, we are now each other's flesh and blood. He's building us together. We're a family. We're a flock, a group of sheep that the good shepherd is building together and putting us in different pens where we can be cared for by people like me, very small under-shepherds. But all these type of shepherds just stand behind the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, who is truly the individual and the only one who is building his church. We're a body. You know where Jesus Christ is meant to be seen in our communities? Biblically defined, he's seen in his body. What's his body? The local church. The church. The one in whom he dwells in all fullness and all glory. He's building us together as a temple. Well, is it like an optional? No, because it's a temple that God dwells in. This is a big deal. A temple which in the Old Testament, one person, a great high priest, once a year could go in. Now we're finding we're we're the temple now. Wow. We have access to this God through the Holy Spirit and through Jesus every day of our lives. He's building us together as a family, as a body, so that we can apply the gospel and know the gospel and proclaim the gospel so that Jesus can be seen in our communities. The biblical mandate on what the church is should blow our minds. And one of the reasons why I've chosen Ephesians is because I want it to blow our minds. We haven't just started yet. All we've found out so far is that God is reconciling us to one another. There's far more to be said. And it gets far more profound as you start to study where Paul goes next. Well, that's in a few weeks' time. But nonetheless, I want you to understand today, my friends, God is drawing us together. He's taking a group of individuals who were chosen in eternity. He's coming and he is plucking you from the grave. He is saving you and then he's bringing you together. The Bible knows nothing of Jesus and me. It knows everything of Jesus and we. The Bible talks about salvation into community. And then we get joined and connected into families, into flocks, into households, into bodies. You know, if you're here today and and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, first of all, thank you for coming. You have my deepest respect that you would come to a church as you would stand in so many ways in the outer courts trying to figure out what, why are they raising their hands? Who are they waving at? You know, there could be so many things that are confusing when you come into a different context. I understand that. And that's why I have, you have my deepest respect for coming and being a part of what we're doing. And you are, in this season, an individual who's looking in from the outer courts. I trust you not feel that we're Jews looking down on you. I trust you feel welcome, and I want you to. I want you to feel a part of what we're doing. I'm so thrilled that you're here. And yet at the same time as being thrilled you're here, I need you to know something. Because I don't just want to kiss you, I want to tell you the truth. And the truth of your situation before the Lord could not be more, not more troubling. See, the greatest problem that is involved in mankind, the greatest problem that is still positioned on your life at this point, is not cancer or AIDS It's not the economy. It's not house we're going to move to next. The greatest problem on your life, as it was on my life too at one point in time, is that there is still a wall of hostility right between you and God. You don't have a relationship with God at the moment. Biblically defined, you can't. See, God made us. We didn't just uh, rock out of primordial slime or something. I mean, gosh, you have to have more faith to believe that than believing that God made us. God made us. He knitted us together in our mother's womb. He made us like him. 
He made us one race by very nature. He didn't come out and say, you know what, let's have lots of different colors. No, he made us one race, a human race. And he made us to find our joy and our identity and our, and our peace in him. The problem is we've rejected him. I did. I lived my life for 18 years doing what I wanted to do. I was my own God. Thanks very much. You know, I'd, I'd put the thumbs up to God at different points, and I'd even ask him for things at different points when I was in trouble. But to be honest, I, I wanted to live as my own king, as my own God. We all do. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Nobody is searching for God. Primarily, we're just standing off him and saying, look, I'll get to you when I'm ready. But so often, we've exchanged the creator for the created. And particularly in a place like Sydney, which is really a playground, I love it, the temptation to exchange the creator for the created, let's just entertain ourselves to death, is profound. That's what I did growing up. I entertained myself. But the problem is because of that, we are cut off from God. We are an object of his righteous wrath. He is holy. He has made us. We have rejected him. The Bible says that we are therefore his enemies. And what has occurred then is there is a wall of hostility higher than we can ever jump between us. People try and get over it. So they say, oh yeah, you know what? You might be right. You might be right about this God thing. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start coming to church and I'm going to be really good. Well, you think that because you come to church, you're going to get over the wall? Nah, it ain't going to do that. So many different religions are based on how am I going to get over the wall? So maybe if I knock on people's doors, I'll earn enough sort of bricks to try and get over somehow. If I'm a Muslim and I think, you know what? If I just bomb up a place, if I bomb up a wall and kill people, that'll work. Because now Allah will let me through this wall and I'll come into paradise. All religions are based on trying to get over the wall. But Christianity says, you know what? You're not going to get over the wall. It's not possible. Your own works aren't going to do it. God is holy. He demands perfection. You are not perfect. So how do I get over the wall? And it's at that point you see someone else. Jesus Christ, with scarred hands, looking down at you over the wall with arms long enough to reach you. He says, you know what? Whoever calls on my name will be saved. It's not about us trying to get over the wall in ourselves. We can't. Jesus Christ came to free us from the wall. He came after us and died on a cross, receiving the wrath that we had earned. He died on a cross to give us life and life in abundance. He died on a cross so the great exchange could take place. My sin for his blessing. My cut off from God and his wrath for his joined with God and his mercy. And as he stands over the wall with you with arms out, he says, listen, come to me, all who are weary, and I'll give you rest. Whoever calls on my name will be saved. How do you apply this message if you're not a Christian? You put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You turn from your efforts to try and jump the wall yourself, realizing that I can't. That's repentance. I'm not going to try anymore. And instead, we put our faith in God who comes and grabs us, and then he takes us. And he puts us over the wall, and he says, okay, now you're in a new kingdom, a new home, the kingdom of God, of which you will never be removed from. If you're not a Christian, talk to me afterwards. Talk to the person who brought you. Don't talk to anybody if you like, but I would urge you to talk to God. 
Put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior. And know in that moment the wall of hostility for you has been flattened to the ground. It doesn't stand in your life anymore. Access to God has been made for you through the bridge of Jesus Christ. If though you're here today as a believer, how do you apply this message? Because it can be tricky, can't it? You listen to it and you think, that is absolutely great. And next time I'm a Jew, I'll figure out that I'll really try and change. You know, it's just, how do, what do I do with that? Well, there are things that we do with it. Paul has some profound information for us that if we just stop and think, we realize this applies and functions in our lives in glorious ways. How do I apply it? Well, listen, Jesus came not only to reconcile us to God, he came to reconcile us to one another by breaking down the walls of hostility. So how do I apply that? In the grace of God, we must do all we can not to start rebuilding the walls of hostility, which he came to break down. See, the Jews liked the wall. They were happy with the wall. They didn't like the Gentiles. They thought that they might be affected by being with them. They might be affected in their lives, and so they didn't want to be with the Gentiles. So look, if you have to come to God, that's okay, but you stay, stay that side of the wall because you stink. Keep out of my life. Because the way you live your life, and because the way you are, I want there to be a wall between us. Jesus Christ came so that that wall would be broken down. And yet, you know, as Christians, I think our temptation could be to rebuild that wall. We want to live in a ghetto, that we have a new city. Thanks very much. We're Christians. We meet on a Sunday. We love each other. Whoa, he's a homosexual? Oh, not for me. We're busy. Do you see how easy it is to, to build walls between us as Christians and the people that God has called us to go after and tell about Jesus? Here's two questions that I want you to consider. If you've got a pen, write them down. Two questions that husbands, I want you to lead your wife in this. Talk together about this topic. If you're singles, chat together. If you're a dad, maybe lead your kids in this where appropriately. Here's the question. Number one, is there any type of person that you or I wouldn't reach out to because of the person they are or because of the way they live? Is there any type of person that you or I wouldn't reach out to because of the person they are or because of the way they live? Maybe you work for a living. Maybe you have a proper job, unlike myself. Maybe you actually get on trains and go to work and then come home on trains and cars. Maybe you go to college and you're spending all day with, with unbelievers, which is wonderful. And one of the things I miss as a pastor is not doing that as much. I have to find other areas and other ways of, of doing those and cultivating those relationships. But maybe for you, as you go to work or as you go to college or as you reach out to your neighbors, you realize there's a type of person that you really don't want to meet because you don't really want to reach out to them. Maybe their language is in the gutter. And as you communicate to them, you realize, man, they are so racist. It's so appalling what comes out of their mouths. Maybe you get to know them and you realize they are homosexuals and they're practicing homosexuals. I'm proud of it. Maybe as you talk to people, you realize they have really strong views about abortion being fine and pro-choice being fine. And they're happy to talk about it. They don't go on about it, but it's certainly one of the things that resonates in their lives and they're happy with. Maybe they're passionately feministic. They are girl power 110%. They are ready for women to take on the world. And it frustrates you. And you just think, oh my gosh, do you, do you mind? There is such a temptation in that moment to build the wall and say, you know what? You can be reached out to by somebody else because you're testing me. Because of the way you live, because of the way you are, I, 
not for me. And so the wall that Jesus Christ built down, we get our little bricks out, we get our cement out, we think, I've got to see you every day, but you stay over there and I'm going to build my wall and if I have to say hello, I will. But there's no effort to try and bring Jesus to them. You know what? The moment there is any individual that we would not reach out to and befriend in the name of Jesus because of the way they behave or because of the way they are, behold the Jew in you and behold the wall of hostility that you you yourselves are rebuilding. The very wall that Jesus came to break down. I've done it myself. I've done it in my own life at different points. You meet someone and you just think, oh my gosh, you're a huge fellow, but you are most the infeminate person I've ever met. Do I really want you around for dinner so my kids can meet you? Lo and behold, the wall goes up. Kids, we love people, but not that type of person. They've got it. Do you see what you're teaching people? You're teaching people that we're a ghetto. We're a temple that God dwells in. Thanks very much. Oh, there. Oh, no, Gentiles. We must not do that. We must do all we can to ensure that Jesus, who broke down the walls, is glorified in our lives by building lives that are not building walls, but is saying, whosoever, I'm going to be your friend. I want to reach you, and I want to tell you for Jesus. So that's the first question. Is there any type of person that you or I wouldn't reach out to because of the person they are, because of the way they live? Number two. Just in closing, is there any fellow believer that you have built a wall between because of something they've either done or said? Maybe someone in this church. Maybe between you and another church. Is there anyone in your life, a believer, someone who loves Jesus, that you have single-handedly built a wall between because of something they've done? Or they've said, you know what, given the nature of sin in our hearts, and the close proximity of being built together in a temple, we will offend each other, all right? Just, we've got to get over that. It happens. We are sinful. I would love to say that when we become Christians, we're, we're perfect. Bad news, until Jesus returns, we're not. We still have issues in between. And I was thinking this week, if God's building us as a temple, it's pretty close fellowship. You know what I'm saying? There's not big gaps between us. We're actually very close. There's tightness between us. Well, given the nature of sin, which gives me job security, given the nature of sin... We're being built together. There will be times when we offend each other, when we sin against each other, when we are being sinned against, and we are doing the sinning. And the temptation in that moment is to build a wall. You know, as a guy, and he's in your life group, but to be honest, he does your head in. You're not a big fan of his personality. Maybe you're quiet and he's incredibly loud, and you just think, you test me. And then before long, because he's loud and you're quiet, he's offended you because he's loud and he said something to you that's upset you. And instead of then biblically to find dealing with it well, you just think, you know what? That's so offensive. And I'm going to build a wall. And you can keep coming to my life group and I'll say hello, but to be honest, I don't really want to have much to do with you. You know, if you invite us over, we will if we must, but I... it's so easy when somebody's offended you to start building that wall. And you know what, sometimes people can even say, you know what, I'm such offended about that guy, I'm going to go join another church. And you say, why have you come here? Ah, uh, there was just this guy in another church and we really didn't get on with him. Really? Did you, did you seek to deal with that, biblically defined? No. Left. Oh, so you built a wall of hostility. You single-handedly built a wall between you and a brother because you didn't like what he said. You know, Jesus paid the price at Calvary for those walls to come down. 
He paid a price on the cross so that we would not only be reconciled to God, but we'd be reconciled to one another. That's how much importance he puts on reconciliation. That's how much importance he puts on building together a temple and a family and a a household. That's why he talks in his word about what we do when we're sinned against and when we do the sinning. Matthew 5, verse 23, he says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Do you see that? But God, I just want to worship you. I just want to please you in my life. I'm coming on a Sunday morning. You are great. And he's saying, stop. You know that you've offended that individual. You need to go back and you need to make sure that that wall of hostility comes down before you come back and start singing to me. Do you see the importance that Jesus is putting on it? He said, I died to build those walls down. I'm not just going to let you build them back up again. You must go to your brother. And there's times in my life where I've had to do that, where I've known that I have said something inappropriate to somebody, I've done something that, to be honest, I've sinned against them. And you think, oh, they'll be all right. You think, no, they might not be all right. I need to go to them and say, you know, would you forgive me for what I did? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend you in that way. What about if you're sinned against? Anybody ever been sinned against? It happens. Do you get the spade out and start building the wall and just think, you know, I'll just keep out of the way? That's not what Jesus says. Matthew 18, he says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. You know what? It is very, 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 very rare that you have to start bringing in the two or three. If you go humbly, if Patrick has sinned against me, which he hasn't, but if he had, and I just go humbly and say, Patrick, you know, when you said that, I don't don't think you meant it in the way you did, but man, it it offended me. I, I felt sinned against Instead of taking the bricks and starting to build them up, I'm just being honest with the guy because I love the guy. And I want to see him succeed in his walk with the Lord. I want him to be aware so that he doesn't do that to other people. I don't want anything to come between us by way of a wall of hostility. So Jesus says, look, if you've got arguments with each other, stop it. And if you can't, stop it. And there are times where you come together and you have fallings out because you sin against each other. Don't start whacking onto everybody else about it. Oh, did you hear what Patrick did to me? I can't believe he did that. That's that's gossip and that's slander. If you're a Christian, you go to your brother in private. You say, my friend, I think you might have sinned against me. I want to be reconciled to you. Would you help me? That's Jesus. And that's what he is commanding us to do. The one who died on the cross to bring down the walls of hostility is then saying, don't you go building them up again. I love you too much for that. You know what the fruit of building them up is in our lives? It's not growing in joy and peace and compassion. It's anger and bitterness. If you go to a church and they are, one of the defining things is they talk about each other and they talk about each other in bitterness and anger, then I will show you the walls because there will be walls that they've built because instead of dealing with things biblically defined, they've harbored us in, built the wall, pushed them out of the way. My friends, Jesus Christ came not only to reconcile us to God, but to reconcile us to one another. And so by God's grace, would we do all we can to ensure that those walls stay down? 
Would there not be anybody outside of the church that we are unprepared to reach out to because of who they are or because of the way they behave? And would there be nobody in the church that we are deciding to ignore because they've either sinned against us or we've sinned against them and we don't want to change? Would we truly be a church without walls? Would we be a church where the walls have come tumbling down? We gather around the cross on a Sunday. We gather around the cross in our life groups. We gather around the cross in our outreach. And then as Sunday finishes, we gather in small groups. We do life together. And then as those things are going on, we don't all face inward after a Sunday. We face outward. And we start telling people about Jesus, befriending sinners, people that are not here today to worship the Lord because they don't know him. How can they know him? Because we've got to tell them. Would we be a church without walls? And by God's grace, then, as we apply this, would all glory go to him? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your gift of salvation, and thank you for your gift of family. You are building us together with grace, with comfort, with life. Lord, would these words bring life to its hearers, and would we apply in a way that brings you glory? Amen.